Shrewsbury, March 1909. The weather had been exceptionally stormy for that time of year, with temperatures dropping below zero at times. A fire breaks out in an outbuilding on Sutton Lane. And Sergeant Barnett is called. He sees a young boy at the scene, whose skin and clothes are covered in dirt. He was filthy. Barnett recognised him as 10-year-old William Edward Roberts. He questioned William, who described seeing a man leaving the building. But Barnett pressed him further, until he admitted that it was him who caused the fire. He was arrested and taken to the police station, where William explained how he'd been sleeping out because he wasn't allowed to sleep at home. Now, William Roberts was known to the police, and the chief constable was well aware of his situation. Sleeping out was a crime. They'd been keeping an eye on him for some time. Often, young William would be seen collecting armfuls of leaves to make a nest to sleep in off London Road. Some nights, he would take shelter and rest in pigsties. The police would chase him, but he really didn't want to be caught, so much so that he'd wade into a nearby pool up to his neck, with just his head poking out of the water. It turns out he'd been living like this for almost two years. By the 5th of March, he was in the most neglected and filthy condition. William's family home was on May Terrace in Cherry Orchard. Just 12 months before the fire, the police had been there to visit his father. He told them he couldn't control the boy and said he wanted him to be sent to an industrial school. These were places where children under 14 would be sent if they were found to be destitute, begging or wandering the streets or if there was a serious parental neglect. So, had this rough upbringing led him to become a toughened, troublesome child prone to antisocial behaviour? Well, it seems not. The master of the Salop Boys' Home at St Julian's Friars, where he'd been a pupil, said the boy was very sensitive to punishment and he couldn't understand why he couldn't be controlled. In fact, he said he was one of the best boys at the home, and very obedient and extremely sharp. So at the end of March 1909, William went to the new Children's Court, a product of the 1908 Children's Act, the magistrate listened to all the evidence and it was decided that this most filthy, neglected but bright ten-year-old boy should be sent to the Clio training ship at Bangor. They should stay there until he reached the age of 16. former battleship, she was now anchored in the Menai Strait and had been there since 1877. Delinquent children as young as William would be sent there to prepare them for a life at sea, either in the Royal Navy or the Merchant Navy. It could hold more than 250 boys at a time. Now, it was no secret that life was harsh for the boys on board. Severe punishments and beatings were handed out for rule-breaking. Some so bad that students who had been beaten had to sleep on their front for days afterwards. There are some sad stories of the fates of other boys who served on the Clio. 
1906, just three years before our boy was sent there, another William, William Crook, a quiet and inoffensive 13-year-old, had his skull cracked. He'd been cleaning his boots when a group of lads gathered around him and started hitting him around the head, and one used a stick. The following day, he was too ill to go ashore and was put to bed. As his condition worsened, a doctor was called who found he was suffering from a fractured skull. He was hospitalised but died the following day. At his inquest, the evidence showed he'd been terribly bullied by the boys who said they'd picked on him because he didn't stick up for himself. Captain Langdon told the judge he punished two of the attackers with 12 strokes of the birch. The jury returned a verdict of death by misadventure. And the officers were praised for their thankfulness in giving evidence. Bullying was simply seen as part of growing up and they clearly felt there was nothing to hide. In another tragic case, in June 1915, the papers reported that the body of a 12-year-old boy was found floating in the Straits, wearing a life jacket. His name was Walter Shaw. By all accounts, he was very well behaved and had never been in the punishment book. He was said to be quite happy, but evidence given at the inquest paints a different picture. The night watchman said how, at 2.30 in the morning, he was doing the rounds and heard a sound. Investigated, turned on a light and found Walter lowering the small lifeboat into the sea. He stopped him and boxed his ears and sent him away to the main deck. When the watchman then went down to see the boy, he discovered he was missing. They searched the ship, but to no avail. It wasn't until the following morning at 11.30 when his body was found floating towards Bangor. Clearly, this boy had been so desperate to escape that when his first plan failed and he was beaten for it, he grabbed a life jacket and jumped. That's the story of 10-year-old William Roberts, sentenced to six years on an industrial training ship off the coast near Bangor in 1909. Sounds pretty unpleasant, so let's find out more. Phil Caradice is the author of Nautical Training Ships and Illustrated History. Morning, Phil. Good morning. So tell us more about these industrial training ships. What were they for? Um, <clears throat> well, they came out of the 1854 Youthful Offenders Act, um, and the idea was to train young boys for careers that they so they wouldn't go into delinquency, they wouldn't re resort to crime. And the idea of putting them on board ships was to prepare them for careers at sea, because Britain as an island nation would always need sailors, and this was the uh, a the, the idea was to give them harsh discipline because it would uh, cure their ways, and b to make them prepared for sea. How bad was it? 
<laughs> bad. The um, you've got to take it in the context of the time. Uh, you know, conditions were were pretty pretty poor. Bear in mind, you're living on board an old wooden warship that has been out of service for forty fifty years. Mm. When it rains, the decks leak. Uh, they sleep in hammocks. They're up at five or six in the morning, and they're working all day. There's very little education. Uh, you know, most of it is trade training so it's learning to row learning to climb masts learning to furl sails the food is basic but but filling so yes it has to be uh, they, they don't wear shoes or boots it's bare feet and uh, they're beaten for this you know the slightest excuse the result is a beating uh, from the officers and uh, as you said in the clip earlier on bullying was endemic because lots of these people regarded bullying as character building you know it, it's good for the lads uh, the conditions in a word were was hard and what sort of ages were the children? Um, they were supposed to be in their teenage years, but the reality was they took them even younger. And some children were as young as six or seven oh. uh, on board these ships. You know, it was horrendous. You can think about a seven-year-old boy on these ships. Unbelievable. And, and the one in Cardiff that they had, uh, the, the Havana, they even took girls on board her. I mean, were there any success stories from the ship? Did did some of these children come come out the other side and do really well? Yes, yeah, some did. Some did. Um, if you think of the Clio up up in Bangor in the Straits, there, she had a, a success rate of around about fifty four, fifty five percent. In other words, that means that when the time to leave came, about fifty four, fifty six percent of the children went to sea, and that was regarded as a success. Uh, of course, the trouble was, and this is where the the whole system fell down. The Royal Navy soon refused to take any boy who had a criminal record. So, you know, in those days, vagrancy was a crime. So mm -hmm. it was very hard to get children into the Royal Navy. The Merchant Navy very, very quickly followed along, and you would be very lucky to get boys into, into the Merchant Navy. So, so what happened was most of these lads ended up in the fishing fleets, uh, and the life on board fishing trawlers, on drifters and trawlers, in, at the end of the 19th century, horrendously hard. And most of these lads, yes, they'd go off the ships, as a success because they got themselves a berth at sea but they'd do one voyage and they'd say thank you very much I'm not doing another one of those and you know then they'd slip into this life of crime so successful in a way not successful in another what sort of ages did these people die um well it, it, uh, it, some of them uh, it, i mean when i was writing the book i was contacted by 18 90 year old men who'd survived on board these ships so really? I, I, oh yeah i think you know what doesn't kill you makes you hard i think is the answer on that one yeah, yeah. Uh, but lots of people died at a very young age and of course you've got to bear in mind that in those days this was uh, sailing was the most dangerous profession in the world and i think of every i think every 400 men who went to sea one died so you know that's much worse than mining as a in, you know so it's it's so lots of people would die when they when they went on the ships and of course the ships themselves in the training ships never a year went by without two or three deaths uh you know arguably from bad conditions mm. from enteric fever as they called it but you know when you get uh, the captain of one ship on the thames he bought blankets that soldiers had been using in the crimean war and when the blankets appeared they still had blood and bits of body on them oh. 
So you hey. can, that'll put people off their breakfast, I know. But, but well, I suppose a blanket's a blanket, though, isn't it? If you haven't got one, you want one. Well, exactly, and that's my point. You know, they, they just simply took these, and but horribly, and they're going to take catch fever, and oh, so so lots of these places, they you know they 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 did die on board the ships. In some cases, they were beaten to death, and that is that's not an exaggeration. We had boys who were beaten until they died, uh, because bear in mind when they beat them, you had two sorts of stick to beat them with. One to give them temporary scarring and one to give them permanent scarring. Sounds horrific. Thank you very (laughs) much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Uh, Phil Caradice, the author of Nautical Training Ships and Illustrated History, and we're going to try and find out what happened to William. Richard Tisdale starts the search. Now, for some unknown reason, he's nowhere to be found on the 1901 census in Shrewsbury when he'd have been just two years old. But you'd most certainly expect to see a 12-year-old William Edward Roberts on an official industrial training ship at Bangor on the 1911 census. But you don't. There's no sign of him. Not on the Clio, not back at home in Shrewsbury. Nowhere. Something must have happened to him in those two years. Did he die trying to escape, get killed at the hands of bullies or fall victim to some terrible accident or illness? Or did he manage to get away, swimming to safety through the strait? The search for William Edward Roberts, the boy in the nest, continues. So, our initial search shows no sign of him. Someone who knows a lot about scouring the historical records is Miriam Silverman from ancestry.co.uk. Good morning, Miriam. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. How long have you been doing this then? Oh, uh, must be at least 10 years now. Uh, And interestingly, I started with my husband's family who have been in Shropshire for many, many hundreds of years. Really? Uh, So it was a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting story to start with. They're from the Telford area, um, Oakengate, St. George's, Wellington. Um, so I learnt my, my family history chops uh, in Shropshire. Oh, um, good, probably good the record experience. I know best. <laughs> very, very much so. The whole sort of social history of England. Is and the, and the more you find out, family. the more you want to find out, don't you? Well, it, ne- it never stops. It never stops building out the branches and discovering new things. I've got, have you got uh, an, a little gem that you can share about Shropshire with us? <laughs> well, it's an interesting family. Um, they were mostly coal miners and uh, metal workers. Um, and they never had to move because the Industrial Revolution came to them. So they sort of stayed in the county all this time. But uh, there were some interesting characters. There was, uh, there was a soldier who was in the, in the Grenadier Guards um, around the time of the Napoleonic Wars. He was a drummer um, and was a soldier in Spain um, before leaving the army. Uh, came up to Shropshire, married a local girl, and then deserted her. Um, so she had to go on the Rotten parish. devil. I know, I know. And then disappears, completely disappears from the record. How easy then is it to track someone down from the past so long ago? Well, if it's your own family, it's a little bit easier because you can start by asking your oldest relatives. They'll always have tidbits that you won't get elsewhere. And then you can go back using the civil birth, marriage and death records. I mean, there's two things we know about everyone, that they were born and that they were died. Um, So that, uh, you know, the civil birth, marriages and deaths are the best place. And the aim is to try and get back into the 1911 census and then work your way back from there. 
um, and try and verify the facts as you go along. But I'm guessing uh, if someone dies and, you know, I don't know, let's say someone goes overboard and they don't know and somebody dies and they disappear, that, that death is not going to be registered then. So that would be hard to find. Yeah, and would it be registered under the right name? Are they using an assumed name? Um, with your William Edward Roberts, uh, which name was he using? Was it Edward? Was it William? Was Roberts actually his name or was it a stepfather's name, for example? Um, did he spell it differently? Did he, was he adopted? Um, these are all possibilities that uh, you have to consider. Maybe he moved. Maybe he left the country. Um, maybe he is indeed buried in an unmarked grave. There was just all these issues you have to try and work through to find him. So how long could it possibly take to find someone like this? Uh, I mean, you'd need a lot of patience, presumably. Yeah, patience is definitely what you need in the family history world. I mean, it could take years, but then, you know, you're always having lucky breaks. Uh, all you need is a fact, and that will lead you to another fact and another fact, and you might finally get the, the truth mm. out there. Are you a big fan of who do you think you are, then? Oh, very much so, very much so. Particularly enjoyed the Danny Dyer episode. That was yes, amazing. Yes, I know. Richard, our producer, was talking about it. I missed that one, but apparently it was quite hilarious, He's wasn't royal it? royal to you, know. He's royal to you, know. <laughs> It was you, uh, Henry VIII, wasn't he, related to or somebody? Prince Charles has had a turn, I'll oh, tell you. He <laughs> was definitely descended from, <laughs> descended from kings. He's descended from Edward III. Oh, but, was it? Uh, right. it, it, was, it, was, it was Cromwell that he was direct, a direct descendant from, um, which he definitely wasn't expecting. Oh, it was a really funny episode. Brilliant. Right, well, uh, well, hopefully we'll find out what, what happened to William Roberts, but thank you so much for talking to us, Where, where should we go now with the search for William Roberts, then? Well, um, there's actually a lot of facts in that little newspaper report about him. Um, so we know he went to school in Salop Boys' Home, so you can look at school records. You know that he was known to police, uh, so he could be in prisoner books or court records. Um, you know where he lived, so you could look in the rape books. But I think that probably the best next step is to look in the records of the Clio itself. And those are kept at um, London Metropolitan Archive uh, in London. And that will tell you if he indeed actually arrived and possibly if he died there and where he went on to afterwards if he did stay. So that would be the best next step to, to go for. Fabulous. We shall do just that. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. That's uh, Miriam Silverman from Ancestry.co.uk. And wonderful how Miriam's got that Shropshire connection. Isn't that nice? Lovely. We've been telling you the story of the boy in the nest, William Edwards Roberts. In 1909, he was caught by the police after a fire in an outbuilding broke out. He was neglected by his parents. He'd been living rough in Shrewsbury for two years. Richard Tisdale has been doing the research to try and find out what happened to him, and he joins us now. So just remind us how you came across this story in the first place. Now, Claire, I love reading the old newspapers. Uh, and in, in the British newspaper archive, they have tons of local papers dating back to the 1700s. And by chance, I was looking at a page from the Yorkshire Evening Post, Friday the 2nd of April, 1909. I can't remember exactly what I was looking for, but in the corner of my eye, I saw a little headline elsewhere on the page. It said... 
slept in a nest, extraordinary habits of a Shrewsbury boy. So I, uh, I read the story about William, how he'd been sleeping rough, making nests to sleep in, how he'd escaped from the police by wading up to his neck in a pool so they couldn't reach him, and how, probably by accident, he'd set fire to an outbuilding, as you say, on London Road, trying to keep warm. The weather then uh, was, much as it is today, unusually stormy but probably colder. Now, he was arrested and sent to serve on the Clio training ship, and as we heard on Tuesday, it was a brutal, brutal place. Bullying was seen as character building and the children there often died uh, either trying to escape or from beatings from their masters or other boys. Now, I was desperate to find out what happened to our boy, William, but he'd seemingly disappeared from the records, as we heard yesterday. And when that happens, you obviously fear the worst. Well, as you know, I've been telling the story, and I also posted it on Memories of Shropshire, a Facebook group, and someone joined in the search, Joanne Osborne. She used to live in Shrewsbury, uh, sorry, in Shropshire, in Clun, but moved to Somerset a few years back. She loves family history and she started doing some digging and she's cracked the case. This is amazing. We now know what happened to William and here's how. It took my interest, obviously, it tugs at your heartstrings a bit. Um, so I thought, right, I'm going to, um, with my interest in ancestry, um, I thought, oh, I'll see if I can find him on local census, but I couldn't. Um, I wasn't. I didn't know his name of his parents or um, or anything. So then there was. It's quite a common name, William Roberts. You know, there's quite a few of them surprisingly around the <laughs> Shrewsbury area. Um, so I wasn't sure if I'd, I'd got the right one, and I kind of gave up with it really. And that was from the initial because I just posted up just purely the newspaper article clipping. That was it, wasn't it? Yes, that's it. Um, then I saw it again on the, the Memories of Shropshire um, Facebook thing that I'm on. And um, I thought, right, I'm going to try it harder this time. <laughs> I'm, I'm determined to find out what happened to him because I, I just didn't want him to die. You know, I just wanted him to be alive somewhere yeah. uh, after his sub beginning. You know, it, it just, you know, it's, it's awful, really, when you think about it. I mean, he, he'd been doing it, what? He was 10 years old at the time, but he'd been doing it for the... T- so it's like it brings him back to about eight years old. You know, it was really... God, you, you know, it's been awful for him. He'd been really so, roughing it, hadn't he? Yeah. Yes, yeah. So I thought, right, I'll see if I can find it. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't find him on Ancestry, but I'm also a member of the Find My Past. Um, so I thought, right, I'll have a look on those. So I thought, right, I'll just see if I can find anything um, around the Shrewsbury on that name. Um, and I came up with a school record. Um, then I read the newspaper article again that you'd posted with the story, and I thought, bingo, it's May Terrace. I know, I knew he lived at May Terrace from the article, and on the school record it had his address as one May Terrace. And I thought, it's the same man, it's the same boy. Um, and also, it, it actually gave his date of birth as well um, to the actual you know, day, um, a month. And, and we'd only got a vague one before that. That's I knew right. it was around 1898. He was 10 years old, supposedly, um, So from 1909. So I, I knew it was about that time. Um, so the next thing I did, right, I, <laughs> I have a subscription for the 1939 census, and I thought, right, he could be anywhere in the country. So all I will do is put the name in. On the 1939 census, he could be anywhere um, and I thought, but now I've got the exact date of birth. I, if, I, if he's there, I will find him. Um, and I did. 
I did. I was so happy. I thought, yes, it's the exact date of birth date and he's living in Crewe. Oh, bless her. Isn't that great? Uh, what a lovely lady. So she's cracked the case. He survived the Clio, amazingly enough, and moved mm. to Crewe. What happened then? Well, that's even more extraordinary. With that crucial piece of information, we were able to then work back through the records and build up a picture of his life. And so we know that at some point he left the ship. Don't know how or when exactly. But we know that in 1918, when he was about 19 or 20 years old, he joined the railways in crew as a helper. We've learned that by finding the union records. So that's how he was listed. After a while, he became a plater. So it was his job to inspect and maintain the tracks, for example. He also got married to a woman called Lucy in very controversial circumstances, as you'll hear now from Joanne herself. I managed to find the marriage um, between him and Lucy Prince in 1936. And she already had a boy at this point? Yes, well, I found on the 1939 census they had a lodger living with them um, called Frank Evans. Um, so I, did, I thought that he was just lodging, but then I looked at the age that he was and I thought, oh, he's only 14 at the time, he's quite a young lad. Um, so I thought, I'll look into his birth and where he's from. And it turned out he had her maiden name, which is Prince, so I presume that's her son, wow. um, and he was born in um, 1925. 17th of February, I've got him down, as 1925. So he was only a young boy. Yes, that's right. Um, in, on the 1939 census, he was. I wonder um, what... He was, he was working in the same industry as his um, supposedly stepfather, if William Edwards is his stepfather, not his proper father. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder what I wonder what attitudes would have been towards Lucy at that point. For... Oh, at the time, no, terrible. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, no, well, you were very tutted upon then, weren't you? You right. know. So she, so she marries uh, a man who's uh, nine years her senior, William Edward Roberts, our boy in the nest. They then have a boy themselves, don't they? Yes, they do. Yes. Um, yeah, in um, nineteen forty. I found her a birth because I searched any births that had the maiden name Prince and the obviously the surname Roberts at about the time after they married, within 10 years, say, I think, of the marriage. And we came up with a David Roberts born in 1940 um, in the same area he was in. I think it, the actual area was that they were living at the time was called Coppen Hall. It still is. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, he was born in that area. Um, that's the last address we actually have of them. David Roberts wasn't actually born then. He was born after that. A year later. Yeah, she was probably pregnant at the time, actually. So that's the last sort of records that we've got of them being uh, alive and whatnot. However, now, William Edward Roberts, you would expect, would have rather a short life expectancy, considering he had such a rough uh, early start to his life. Yes. But that wasn't the case, was it? Tell me all about that. Well, I've actually found his death, and I know I've got the right one because it, it actually says his date of birth as well. It's the right area. But he, en he ends up living till 1979, um, which maybe, you know, listeners might actually remember him. So he's 83 years old. Um, yes. His wife then? Well, she lived till 2001, T which is amazing. That's From 1908. She was born in 1908, and she lived at two to 2001. 
That's extraordinary. Yes, so she lived until age, 2001. It? Yeah, it was just sparks an interest and then it's like it, it becomes fascinating and you have to know the end. It's like a book. So this is extraordinary. So they've had a child. They've, you know, she's had two children. Yes, that's right. They could still be alive. They could still be out there. Well, well, of course, you know, um, the David, definitely, you know, there's, you know, there should be people about that remember them, at least um, the children, if not them themselves. Everybody knew everybody. So hopefully, you know, somebody will come forward and say, hey, yes, so, I remember them, you know. So wouldn't, it, family. so wouldn't it be amazing if we yes. could find somebody who knew William Edward Roberts, who maybe, do, do they know the story? Do they have a photo? I don't know. I, yeah, the photo would be absolutely wonderful to see, to actually put a, a, a face to the name, you know. No, it would be a real, it'd give me a real buzz to, to actually look him in the face, you know. That would be absolutely fantastic. Yes, I remember when we found out that he was alive, I was dancing around the kitchen, I think, much yes. like you were. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was really buzzing. Milton thinks I'm mad, like, but <laughs> yeah, it really yeah, made my day, made me weak. And so there you go. He moved to Crewe, he joined the railways, he had a family and seemingly lived happily ever after. Knowing you, though, you're not stopping there, are you? No, of course not, no. Uh, Joanna and me are going to try and track down a living family member, a direct relative or someone who knew him or his family. How much do they know about William's childhood and what will they make of it? And maybe they've got a photo of him. Wouldn't it be an amazing end to a wonderful and incredible story? Someone heard the story and our appeal for relatives on BBC Radio Shropshire and the names rang a bell and someone got in touch. His name was Gareth Roberts. He was from Derby. It turns out he was David's son, so William's grandson. Now, I've been speaking to Gareth and it seems they were an interesting family and just to warn you, his grandmother had a funny but colourful turn of phrase but the story of the boy in the nest was news to him. I was absolutely amazed. Um, the fact that my grandfather was well, slightly more racy than I'd ever given him credit for. He, I was nine, eight or nine when he died in 79, and he lived in Crewe, I lived in Derby, so I didn't really see very much of him, apart from this rather you know, frail old man watching the world of sport on Saturdays when I used to pop over and visit. Um, but the idea that he was uh, lugged off to some floating ball stall, apparently, um, for arson, it is all rather extraordinary. When did you find out and, and what did you think? I was contacted by my grandfather's brother's daughter. Um, she lives in Shrewsbury. She was um, contacted by one of her friends regarding the story, story you were running. Uh, so she phoned up to say, hello, Dave, this is uh, going on on the radio. Would you be interested in finding out more? And um, so she was able to tell me all of the details. And as a result of that, I was able to get in touch. And here we are. So did you then start doing a little more uh, research into the story? It was something which was completely new. Um, it's never something which was raised 
you know, by my father. My, my father used to, you know, he was fairly open. He wouldn't uh, keep hold things back. So I assumed that he had no uh, knowledge of it either. Um, so I, I went on to the Memories of Shropshire Facebook page, had a look at that, read the article which you wrote, and um, got in contact with yourself and is it Joanne, who's been doing all the digging around the records offices and what have you. When we were doing the research, we were thinking this might have had a, a, a sad end. Yes, but I, he's one of the lucky ones, I, I dare say, one of the ones that got away. So what do you remember from your, your, your grandma then, uh, your grandmother, Lucy? She always seemed to have a bit of a twinkle. She didn't trust banks very much, so she used to hide all of the cash. You know, uh, the old-fashioned staircases used to have the single runner going up the middle. She used to hide the old paper money, the big fibers and the big pound notes, behind the carpet. And they were just moving out, just loading up the van, just about ready to go, the carpet, the money, and, and dashed, dashed back into the house because all of that, that stretch of housing was due to be demolished. And um, she, she, liked, she liked things which were a bit racy, actually, which is probably why she liked my granddad. She, she had a strange idea of what racy was. Um, she, she used to think that Catherine Cook's novels were rather near the knuckle. But she, she, she was always good fun. She had a nice turn of phrase. I remember my dad once asked, you know, what's for, what's for dinner, ma'am? And it was one of the common replies he got is pig sticks and lettuce. It's, uh, but it, it gives an idea. I mean, it, there was there was no blue. There was there, there certainly was a twinkle. So that's Gareth Roberts, the grandson of the boy in the nest, William Roberts. So we've heard about what his grandparents were like, but what's Gareth up to these days? Did he follow the family tradition then and join the railways? Well, when Gareth's dad grew up, he moved to Derby, which is where Gareth grew up. And did he join the railways? No. But you'll find out what he does do, and you'll also discover what links him, his great-granddad and Victorian Prime Minister Lloyd George. Well, we've still got a couple of loose ends to tie up. Right then, Richard, what happened in the time between him leaving the ship and joining the railways? Because there's a two-year gap here. Yes, there is. Well, I've been in frequent contact with uh, Gareth, the grandson, since uh, I tracked him down. And he's been doing lots of his own detective work, asking his family for scraps of information to try and fill in the gaps. Now, he told us that, uh, unfortunately, his dad, uh, David, died two years ago. So there was a bit of trouble getting some information there. But his mum's still alive and remembers being told that William served in the First World War. But he was gassed and hit by shrapnel, apparently, and so went back home. So left the ship in 1916, went to war, and uh, in 1918 came back. Uh, He then went to crew and joined the railways. There is a suggestion that when William married Lucy Prince in 1936, she already had a son. What do we know about that? Well, that was very interesting, and we thought that may have been her son. His name was Frank Evans, although the family called him Neil, a bit like the uh, Dave Trigger situation. Um, he'd shown up on the census uh, living with them uh, at their address, and he also had the name Prince when we did a bit more digging. Turns out he was Lucy's nephew. Lucy had two sisters. One of them, Elsie, died young, so Lucy uh, took in her son and raised him as his own. He since died a long time ago, apparently. So all this in crew, but there are links, still links with Shropshire, aren't there? Indeed. Well, William obviously left Shrewsbury in 1909 when he went to the ship, but his brother, John, stayed in the area. He's now buried in Uffington Churchyard, apparently. But he 
had three daughters, and one of them is Beryl from Shrewsbury, who's in her 80s. Well, she's the one who heard our appeal just the week before last and contacted Gareth, and it's led to something rather special, as you'll hear. But first, remember I told you yesterday that something links Gareth, his great-grandad, and the Prime Minister Lloyd George? Well, here it is. I was always told that um, somewhere along the line, either my great, I think my great grandfather, it must have been, used to deliver coal to Lloyd George's house in in North Wales. Which, um, being a good Liberal Democrat, um, you know, makes me practically royalty within the party. Um, <laughs> so that's William's dad. That's right. Yes, but how true this is, I don't know. It's, it's unfortunately, it's, you know, it must be the bane of your profession that uh, many of the. You know, the, the full details of these stories die out with the people that were telling them and you get these sort of vague Chinese whispers of them of them coming down the generations. But that is what I've always been told. When Lucy moved into the care home, uh, there was outside shed attached to the house, which did have, I mean, this is like the, the great lost treasure of Atlantis. She, there, was, um, there was at least one full length uh, portrait in a brown frame. There was various documents and what have you, and they, they cleared the house out. And unfortunately, nobody went in and cleared out the shed. So the the council works would have gone in because it was a it was um, sheltered accommodation. The council works would have gone in with a skip and ditched a lot of stuff. So tell me, did you follow in your father's and grandfather's footsteps and go into the railways, carry on the family tradition and the family oh, trade? God, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not technical in the slightest. Um, no, I, I went to university um, from Derby. I went down to St Mary's in Twickenham and have stayed here ever since. And now I work in market research with a... And I'm the... Well, pe- people might not like this, but I'm the Liberal Democrat leader of the opposition on Richmond Council. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's, it's all rather a revelation and it shows how far families can come in, in just, you know, one or two generations. You go from um, this rather painful early story to a complete transformation. So, so you've only recently got in touch with Beryl again from Shrewsbury. That's right. Um, I, I, I always knew that she existed and, and she knew of me, but it's one of those quirks of families that uh, once... Once people move away, you you know that they're there, but you 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 either don't know how to get in touch or or you lose touch. And so this this is the first time um, as a result of this program that I've that I've spoken to her. But I, I had to phone her up, give her the bad news about my father. And but now we've uh, established something of a chatty phone relationship, which is rather nice. Well, you know, I like to feel that um, that this story and uh, and us at the radio station here that we've maybe helped bring the family together a bit. Absolutely, you've you, you've you've done the full Silla Black routine. It's it's surprise surprise all over again, and and it's the power of local radio, folks. Nice story, well done, Rich. Very beautiful story, isn't it? Just. Uh, and Gareth has been kind enough to send us a picture of his granddad, William Edward Roberts. So if you've been wondering throughout this whole time what the boy in the nest really looks like, you can have a look at our Facebook page and find out. It's been such a terrific story. I've loved digging into it and finding out more. And we've brought a family together. Who'd have thought it would end like this? Well done, Richard. <laughs>